On Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we take a cinematic excursion through the work of groundbreaking Filipino thespian Vic Diaz. On this episode, we're looking at Eddie Romero's 1971 horror classic, The Beast of the Yellow Knight, starring John Ashley, Ken Metcalf, Mary Wilcox, and of course, Vic Diaz as Satan. happened to Vic Diaz. I'm Liam O'Donnell, and with me as always is the Lord of Darkness, or some version thereof, Doug Tilly. Hey, Doug! How you doing? I'm doing all right, Liam. You know, I'm thinking a little bit about Satan now that you've brought him up, because Vic Diaz does, yeah, play some variation on the Satan character, the trickster Satan character in this particular film. And just the idea, you know, people mock the the kind of old-fashioned Christian idea of Satan with, you know, the long tail and the pitchfork and all that sort of shit. And I get it. But it's strange that that vision of Satan is so much less scary than, you know, the concept of Satan, right? It's almost like it's been softened. Maybe it's because it's presented more for children or something like that. But yeah, like that image of of the devil with a pitchfork and just kind of like mischievous and almost, in, in fact, in some ways, like the Vic Diaz character in the film we're going to be talking about today, more mischievous and kind of uh, just he he just wants to fuck around with humanity. Like that's what he's really into. It's kind of an interesting uh, presentation of it, as opposed to someone who just kind of, you know, lords over a place where you're just tortured twenty four seven for all eternity. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, there. I forget the name of the movie, but there's a Nick Cage movie where he escapes from hell to like save his daughter. Is that Drive and- Angry? Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. And the version of Satan in that movie is he's just an administrator. He's got no ill will. He's just in charge of something. And like, you know, he's he kind of likes Nick Cage. He kind of doesn't want him, but he's got to do his job. You know, he's just doing his job. I kind of like that version of Satan, actually. The guy who's like, I don't know. I'm in charge down here. It's fine. I don't really I mean, like I it. think I'd get along with Satan. Him and I sure. might be buddies, right? I mean, Maybe I, I, he just I, needs a buddy like me. I do think that the I mean, A, the version of Satan that you're describing it's been filtered through so much European bullshit, like a sure, lot of Christianity, of that it's yeah. like so far. And then the version of Satan in the Bible, I mean, come on. It's like, it's not like a clear, uh, I mean, I don't assume we have a lot of Christian listeners, but if we do, um, I, you know, people, when they find out, you know, that I have a theology degree and that I'm, in my mind, some version of, of a follower of Jesus, I guess, uh, <laughs> They uh they want to they might want they might they might want to talk about stuff like this and they're never gonna like my opinion like I'm always like I'm not into that you know like if 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 I was ever gonna believe in evil it all comes from our own selfishness the idea of like some force or some power or some other sort of like location that's all such a such a distraction to me like the idea that that you know i really doug i go back to the james baldwin essay where james baldwin really was bummed on the exorcist because he's like why does satan need to take over some little girl like we're all pretty corrupt on our own it's kind of silly to think like that you know this is something that he would care about and in the same way with this like James Baldwin wrong as usual <laughs> it's not it wasn't Satan who possessed the chi- the kid in 
No, but the idea of evil. Like, yeah, he, his but whole, I mean, it's supposed to be like a sub-demon type shit. His whole thesis is that movies like The Exorcist help white people ignore the fact that they are the the devil, basically. Yeah, I like gotcha. that they are the source of evil for a lot of people, not exclusively, <laughs> but they are one of the major sources of evil in the world. <laughs> so instead, they like to think of like, well, there's some creature that we found in Baghdad, of course, yeah, and he's yeah. corrupting little girls, and it's like, come on, really, get out of here. Uh, it is funny though with this particular movie, the there's a lot going on where we have a character who is being been brought back to life to uh, live for eternity, helping to corrupt the souls of various people that he interacts with, and then whenever he maybe isn't as stoked on doing that, he has a punishment, which we'll get into. Uh, but this this film when it first started, I knew from the trailer that in some sense this is a monster movie. And it's in the yeah. title, right? The Very Beast much so. of the Yellow Knight. But for a while, there's no beast. And I was kind of like, what the fuck is even going to happen here? Where's this beast going to come from? And then there, it's revealed, right? Uh, and it made me think, Doug, I, uh, it's something we haven't talked a lot about. Are you a big fan of kind of like classic monster movies? Like this film kind of transitions at times into a almost like a werewolf movie the way that oh, it's shot the way that it functions very much so and it makes me think about like how do you like werewolf movies do you like those kinds of like monster creature feature kind of movies do you have a, a preference for a more uh inhuman monster like some monster movies it's just a, an outside force but this is more of an internal corruption again like a werewolf that comes out the the human who's haunted by their own corruption and becomes the beast or whatever is is that your vibe do you like those kind of movies Yes, I particularly like this kind of spin on it, which is that even though this is supposed to be a, a dude who was a piece of garbage when he was alive, that he is somewhat sympathetic, right? Because he does have a sense of uh, his own corruption, and he's been he he's been given a real weird gift, which is that he he has to uh, he's basically sold his soul to Satan, and he has to continue to live to corrupt other people, but he has a certain level of free will. And Satan is kind of punishing him for wanting to um, exercise that free will simply by saying, I want to be dead. That's kind of what his whole deal is. And that's very kind of a Larry Talbot from the Wolfman type thing where he's just like, I recognize that I am doing evil and I hate myself for it and I want to die rather than do it. And I, that's a really <laughs> – maybe it's a more um, – recognizable trait in a someone in 2023 than it would have been even before that. But no, it's just the idea that, that um, of the sympathetic protagonist, and there's a real complexity to the protagonist here, which isn't to say that it's, it, it's done very, very well, but I do like that aspect. And I also love, you know, just like with the Bride of Frankenstein or, or even the original Frankenstein, right? Someone who has been corrupted in a way that they don't have total control over someone being manipulated, that sort of thing. And all the kind of, um, the themes that go along with it. I feel like the thematics of those early monster movies of the 1930s and 1940s are actually a little more interesting than the thematics of the atomic age monsters of the 1960s and 50s. Yeah, I agree. I like a lot of those movies too, but I just mean, I don't find them as interesting to kind of re return to and think about. Um, but my favorite universal monster movie actually doesn't have a lot of that. It's the invisible man simply because it's such a wild movie and it. it's just it's just about hey what if the protagonist was just literally insane and wants to kill everybody and no one else is important except for this guy and it's got Claude Rains so yeah I love monster movies Liam that's my long version of saying I really do enjoy them that said I didn't grow up like reading well not famous monsters or anything like that but I mean I just even though I loved monster movies as a kid um it didn't kind of stoke my love for horror that was stoked more by you know 80s style 
horror movies and goopy special effects and stuff like that. I'm in a similar boat. In fact, it's one of the reminders. I think sometimes when you are a fan of cinema uh, and you are a fan of a specific genre and you encounter people who think they also like that thing, right, but they don't have the experience you do, it's hard to take their fandom seriously. But if I think about myself as a kid, I probably, you know, I've told the story out here before, but for maybe new listeners, in my mind, my relationship with horror movies began in second grade when I saw A Nightmare on Elm Street. And and that's when I started caring about horror movies. Right. But my mom kind of shattered that when she told me that in first grade, I insisted that she make me a Wolfman costume. Mm -hmm. And that I had a number of books about universal monsters and monsters and creatures and all this stuff. Uh, things about vampires, all this stuff. And I was so confused by that. And what she said was... Well, all that stuff was present in the culture. You didn't need to see the movie to know about it. Right. And that's a reality that there are people who maybe haven't seen the horror movie that you care about or haven't read the horror comic or or and we're talking about horror. It could be any sort of genre. They think they they think the thing is cool, but they've only absorbed it through the culture, through what's easily available to them. They don't know that the lore goes past that. And I think that's really present right now, Doug, for zombies. There are a bunch of people who've only watched the show, The Walking Dead. Sure. And they are experts on zombies in their minds because they've watched all the episodes. So now they know everything about zombies. And there's some other dude walking around with a fucking Lucio Fulci tattoo who's like, the world is full of posers. Look at these people. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. But in reality, like, I, I, I don't think it's wrong to say I've done research into this topic, and so I feel like I know something. I don't think that's a bad thing, but it is worth taking seriously that you can fall in love with something just with what's available to you. I had never seen The Wolfman. I have seen it since, but I had never seen it. I still have never seen The Invisible Man, uh, but I have the Universal box set, so it's on my to-watch list. But it's uh, so, One other thing about those movies is that they're so short. They're right. so easy yes, to yes, watch, yes. right? Most of them are just over an hour. By the way, just not to interrupt, Liam, but it's funny that your first – horror movie that you kind of connected with was Nightmare on Elm Street, that Freddy Krueger character became what you were saying. Later, he became so omnipresent right, that people exactly. knew all about him and felt like they were experts on him without ever having seen the movies. Well, I think it's actually darker than that in some sense with him. And this is true probably of yeah. more things, right? Because people forgot that he's a fucking child molester, child <laughs> murderer. That's what the story is about. He, he hurts children. He's not like a funny comedian who just happened to get burned up, right? Like, he's a bad, bad dude. But, like, I, I remember being a kid and saying, like, to people... Like, well, Freddy's not cool. He's the bad guy. And then being, like, mildly offended at the idea. Like, what do you mean? He's funny. He's great. Right. He's, he's got right. his own TV show. And I'm like, no, but no. He hurts children. Like, that's what the story is about. So, anyways, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you on the monster movie thing. I will say this, and I want to get your feedback. This movie, you know, we're going to talk about how it functions as a monster movie, about the effects, all that stuff. <laughs> One of my issues with werewolves is that I think that when I think abstractly about werewolves, let's say nothing about werewolf movies, but about like a world where these monsters might exist. Werewolves seem awesome, right? In, in fact, for me, and I think they seem cooler than vampires in a lot of ways. Like there's just something uh, amazing about them. And yet f for me, so many werewolf movies are bad. Like they just don't mm -hmm. work. And a lot of that has to do, I think, with the effects and how effective the effects are. Do you feel similarly that, that there are a lot of werewolf movies that are just simply missed opportunities? To an extent, yes. But it, it kind of comes down to the fact that there are a hundred great 
uh, vampire movies and a half dozen really good werewolf movies, right? Sure. I mean, the fact is that that time period with the Howling and American Werewolf in London came out the same year. I mean, that's that's an amazing accomplishment in a lot of different ways. But the fact that there are two great werewolf movies that are completely different, right? And then what? The, the, both of the but those franchises had sequels which were completely fucking terrible. Right, it's just it's just a really hard thing to do because again, going back to the thematic idea, it's hard not to just kind of follow the Wolfman structure, right? Where it's just one dude and he's very sympathetic and he gets bitten and all that sort of shit. When you start putting it into the real world, like like you were just saying in the logic idea of it, and it's just like if it's a guy who's aware that that he's a werewolf, um, it's hard not to just think, well, he should. But, a, he should tell people about it, and he can prove it, right? It's something that he could visibly prove. B, then they could just fucking strap him down in a way that is unbreakable and put him in a cage and sort of shit like that. And it's not that big of a deal, right? It's just that it seems like a solvable problem to a certain extent in a way that, that vampirism where where the monster is someone who actually likes being the monster isn't a solvable problem. So it's a little harder to write around it. It's a little harder to come up with interesting ideas around it uh which is why you know those two particular movies the howling and american werewolf they take really different kind of strands right like the self-help part of of uh the howling and the comedy part of american werewolf in london but it just maybe it just doesn't give you enough room to move around in though you know those paul nashy movies from spain i mean he made what like 20 fucking werewolf movies i've seen a few of them and some of them are, are pretty darn good but they definitely are good in a you know campy-ish type way uh, it's not a way that you take particularly seriously sure, in the films yeah. that I see. You know, not not as campy as like a El Santo versus a werewolf type movie. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you could take it to a different direction. But it it is, I think, in its more traditional form, it's hard to come up with something that's compelling if you're going to set it in modern day. I think this is the thing that for me, it, it's just interesting because if 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 I'm gonna choose uh, two horror novels recommended to me, one about vampires and one about werewolves, I probably am gonna be more interested in the werewolf one because I I think there's something there that will be fun for me. But with the movies, I mean, you you nailed on the for me the two greatest right now. I will say when it comes to Paul Nashi, I'm a bit agnostic. You know, I, I sure. don't have enough experience to know if that level of camp is going to be fun or if I'm going to hate it. I, I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen enough. But like when it comes to werewolf movies that are taking themselves seriously, with an asterisk next to American Werewolf in London, obviously, uh, it, it, there are so many that I think mean well, but then don't work. Like a, a great example is uh, for me is Bad Moon. A movie where the actual werewolf creature looks cool, but the one transformation scene you get is a meme. It's so bad. It's like the worst digital effects in the history of digital effects ever. And so while I don't think the rest of the movie is like super compelling either, if that shitty transformation scene wasn't in the movie, I'd say, oh, that's a fine. It's fine. It's a fine werewolf movie. You know, It, it mostly works and the werewolf looks cool. But that transformation scene turns that movie into a fucking joke. Like a like like a punchline, you know. I, I mean, you, what you're saying, I, I, it's not something I really touched on, but you're right. I guess the effects part is kind of an essential thing. I don't think the transformation, even though transformation sequences are classic with the werewolf movie, I don't think it has to be great necessarily, as long as the actual creature is either hidden in a way that makes it so you don't, it doesn't matter how good it looks, right. or it looks at least when it's transformed, it's cool. It's why it's always. I mean, I've always really been a little conflicted on the fact that the transformed 
werewolf in an American werewolf in London is like an all on all fours actual giant wolf. I it agree. looks cool as it looks cool as hell, but there's only so much you can do with that, right? Where it's a wild animal. I mean, um, I definitely prefer a uh, a bipedal werewolf. If I yeah, had a exactly. You know? Right, right. No, and, and you know, let's go back to the Wolfman. It's not my favorite Universal horror movie, but it's like they they do what they can with what they have available. I think with the Bad Moon example, it's more like just don't do the scene. Yeah. Like, you know, you saw what you had, right? And you still put it in the movie. I would have just cut that whole sequence out because you don't really need it, right? It's it's really like reaching for something that you're not going to be able to grasp. Anyway, there's not a cool transformation in this movie, really. But yeah. uh, but we're going to talk about whether this monster, which I should be clear, it's not a werewolf, but the way it functions is very similar to a werewolf. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about whether this works or not. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, y'all. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about 1971's the Beast of the Yellow Knight. We'll be right back. When the evil in a man has so rotted away his soul that even death cannot bring him release, he suffers the cruelest curse ever placed upon mortal man by the host of darkness. He becomes the Beast of the Yellow Knight. Mangled beyond recognition in an industrial accident. He returned from the dead to possess the body, the life, and the woman of another. But his desire made him a savage beast, condemned to stalk the night with an insatiable lust for living flesh. Satan saves a man from death on condition he becomes his disciple. And, as it turns out, a hairy, murderous beast. (laughs) It's 1971's The Beast of the Yellow Knight. Directed by our man, Eddie Romero. Uh, This is, uh, I think, the first movie we've done uh, of Eddie Romero's since White Force. But we did talk a lot about how Eddie Romero is a name we're going to be talking about a lot on this show. Because of how much he worked with Vic Diaz and how much he did a bunch of movies in the Philippines. Um... This was the first release for Roger Corman's distribution company, New World Pictures, Doug. That's kind of historical, right? That's yeah, they, I don't think they put any money into it outside of buying the rights afterwards. Sure, but, sure, sure. I mean, sure. They, you know, for those who've seen um, Machete Maidens Unleashed, it'll become a collaboration. You know, obviously a lot of uh, Corman movies will be made in the Philippines later in the 1970s, but I guess it all kind of started here. And this feels, we'll talk a little bit more about this too, but this feels a bit more like a Filipino production, both in the sense of like the people who are starring in it, but also just in like the credits and stuff. There's things about the Philippines. There's a big, you know, shot in the Philippines. It's like trying to to almost make a case for movies in the Philippines, you know? Absolutely. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, The movie stars John Ashley, uh, Mary Charlotte Wilcox, who... Uh, you know, was eerily familiar to me, but it was only in research that I realized she did stuff with SCTV later in life, which was kind of a big surprise. I don't know a lot about SCTV other than the, you know, the people who got the most famous from it. You know what I mean? So Yeah, she was kind of like a secondary cast yes, member of yes. SCTV, uh, and, but then showed up in like Maniac Mansion, the yep. which is, you know, SCTV adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, uh, Leopoldo Salcedo, Eddie Garcia, Ken Metcalf, of course, Vic Diaz, uh, Andres Centenara, and some other people uh, as well. 
Uh, yeah, it's you know, there's there's people in it. Some of them are people I recognize, some they weren't. It's uh, funny because I think Ken Metcalf is in like half the fucking movies that we talk about. On I mean, show he really is. It's, well. Yeah, and he's recognizable, right? Like mm-hmm. there are people you see in these movies, both uh, American, but there's a number of Filipino actors in this film who I'm sure we've seen before, right? Like that. Yeah, of course. There's, there's people who've who've come into our into our world before. Uh, before we get into some of that stuff about performances and actors, all that stuff, I just want to start with a basic question, Doug. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this before, if this was your first time viewing, but what do you think of this movie? Uh, this was my first time watching this. I certainly was aware of it. I also knew that its reputation was that it wasn't necessarily a great movie. I mean, it, it's been covered on riff tracks and things like that, which isn't always a clear sign about a movie's quality. I... I like the ideas in this movie, which is sort of a damning with faint praise, I suppose. What I mean is just like it's so interesting this kind of concept of like a, a war deserter in the late 1940s who is killed and then revived by Satan in various forms to do his bidding. And because of his tortured self, you know, his tortured existence, he has to be cursed once again by Satan into being turned into a werewolf, though not until like halfway through the fucking movie. It's, it is a really. It's it's like almost like two concepts stitched together to a certain extent, and it doesn't always play out in the most interesting way. It's pretty violent uh, when he's in his monster form, in particular. It's it, it's pretty darn violent, and I do like the part near in the second half where he connects with that blind you know a blind guy who was a gangster and apparently was in prison for a very long time, and like he find that guy is able to find the redemption in himself that our main character just can't find and isn't able to die because of it. I just think that thematically there's something really interesting going on here. That all said, it's a pretty rough movie and it's kind of boring a lot of the times, especially because the lead performance isn't very endearing or engaging. So John Ashley, who, you know, he had a very long acting career and, and he's perfectly competent. He just, there's just not much to him here, especially when, and not to jump too far ahead, when you got that Vic Diaz performance and he's bringing it, uh-huh, and I have to say, uh-huh. I almost wish that this was the first movie we ever covered on this show because I when agree. you talk about, we you know we've called uh, it's kind of a, a known thing Vic Diaz being the Filipino Peter Lorre, that's what he's doing here. He is fucking amazing in this, and every time he's not on screen, I wish characters were saying, "Where's Vic Diaz? Let's get him in here," especially <laughs> when he kind of vanishes in the second half of the movie for a long time. Yeah, I uh, I agree with that, Doug. I thought watching this two kind of conflicting ideas. One was that this movie is um, by certain... Well, it's funny you said that it has a reputation of not being very good because I, I know a lot of people who have maybe not super praised it, but just talked about how important it is or, sure, or how they, absolutely. there are things they love about it. I, and so for me, I, I felt like, well, I don't know that this lives up to some of the people I know who've kind of hyped it a little bit. Uh, but I did also think, God damn, I wish this was the first thing we watched because... It is such a great Vic Diaz performance. It's one of the stronger things of his that we've watched on this show. And uh, that's really interesting because we've gotten to see a lot of things he's done. And it's not that the performances and other things have been bad, but I just like what he's given to do here as his character. Uh, Of course, there is a little bit of um, uh, uh, comparison bias in that our man Ashley is – he's bad, Doug. Like I, I, John Ashley in this is just – not in the movie. He's barely. I was trying to be nice simply because he had such a long acting career, but yeah, he's he's not a good actor. 
I mean, okay. I, I there's a number of. I was going to cover a bunch of topics before we got there, but let let's just talk about it performance wise. I think the movie. You're right. The movie is kind of rough. It's certainly got its editing issues. Even like just some of the camera work. You're thinking, man, I would have I would have done another take of that. That's yeah. I don't know that everything's in frame for this shot. There that there's that kind of roughness. When it comes to the performances, though. The reason I want to dunk on John Ashley is I don't think the other performances are that bad. In fact, one of the ones that I found really surprising, considering the reason I know her is comedy, I thought Mary Charlotte Wilcox was pretty good in this role, which is not like an easy role, I think. It's like, you know, it's very... eh. Uh, it's very campy, which, you know, I was about to say unintentionally campy, but that's what makes it campy, right? Is that sure, they're not sure. trying to be, so it's, you know, you could make fun of her performance to some extent, but that's what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to be the histrionic uh, female protagonist who's like, loves this condemned man and is doing everything she can for him. And then when she finally sees the monster that he is, just goes fucking catatonic, right? Yeah. Which is like, that could have been done in a way that is as understated as he is, but that's not what she does. You know, now is it, you know, is it the killer performance that Vic Diaz gives? No, it's not that. <laughs> but uh, again, it's like, it's it through John Ashley, our other folks here, whether it is Eddie Garcia or whether it is uh, Leopoldo uh, Salcedo uh, or even like Ken Metcalf, who's not in it like a ton per se. Uh, all these people seem to me, Doug, to be doing a better job because John Ashley just doesn't seem to be doing... I mean, he's stoic, and there are times when he's supposed to be stoic, but he's stoic the whole goddamn time, Doug, which makes me think that, like, he's incapable of anything but stoic. Yeah, he, he's not he's not presenting tortured well enough, considering right. that's kind of the crux of his character, right? right? right, right. Uh, I, I, by the way, I forgot that we had, we covered Beyond Atlantis as well, which also had right. John Ashley in it and was directed by Eddie Romero. That was the last film likely that we. Uh, oh, you're right. That's true. That's true. That's true. Um, but, also, I didn't like him in that either. I, I don't. No, think. right, exactly. <laughs> I think Mary Wilcox does a good job. Uh, she has to get naked a bunch of times too, uh, which is another part of her role in this movie. And I don't mean to discount it at all. It's just that that's part of why she's here as well. And you know, it's she she. It's a pretty thankless role, right? I mean, yes. she really does have to just kind of care. <laughs> it's hard to understand why she cares so much for this person, and also the idea that. I mean, there's a real kind of moral quandary. He has sex with her. I mean, I know it doesn't matter because he's working for Satan, but like, he's not her husband. He's like when he 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 inhabits the body of this guy, but he's a different dude. Right. <laughs> so right, there's right. a real yeah. There's a there's an iffy uh, moral thing there as well because that never really gets resolved in any. Like, just try to explain to her if she comes out of her catatonic state exactly what happened with her husband. It would be yeah. very hard to explain. Oh, yeah, he's a monster. He looks like the Grinch now for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he's not, right? He, he, when he finally, um, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll get to the ending in a sec, but <laughs> when it wraps up at the end, he becomes the old version of the man that he is, which is an interesting decision. So I feel like when, when she sees the body, she's going to be like, well, that's not my husband. It's like, well, it is though. I don't know. I think the Filipino performers are like, are way better than the, American I was about to say, Canadian isn't that performers. right? Like they're really, I, I don't want to overstate it. I think they're kind of killing it, man. I think they're doing pretty well considering they're all speaking in English, except for a few scenes. Um, and, you know, and not just our main, like the police people, a lot of the crowd work is really good. People who otherwise might be considered extras are actually pretty solid in this movie, right? I thought that um, 
uh, Andreas Centenara in particular as the blind as the blind man, man is great. Yeah, I thought he's terrific. Really, really good. And I mean, I, I don't think I've ever I don't have a memory of seeing him in anything else. But I think he does a really good job. And he has that kind of sense of even though he's at peace with himself a little bit, like right. he has that kind of gravitas that the lead character just doesn't have. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's true. And I think again, I'm not trying to defend John actually, but I just want to point out part of the reason I am. If anyone asks, I'm gonna shit on him a little bit. It's just because <laughs> I, it's just because he's like I hate to say it, but though this is a very Filipino production, he's there as the token white guy. He's supposed to be the reason international audiences are gonna fucking watch this movie, right? Yeah, he was, he was like a beach party actor in like the 1950s yeah. and stuff. And so he's there to sell this to the white folks, and all of these Filipino actors are fucking nailing it. And my man, who's the featured. Uh, Whiteman is he just doesn't seem like he cares now granted uh, again it might be I'm I'm assuming that he's capable of more than this and he just doesn't <laughs> do it and that might be unfair to him but just as a as a watcher who doesn't remember him from beyond Atlantis which maybe is also saying something uh it just felt like everyone else was trying to be in a movie and my man is just hanging out and it really bummed it bummed me out and I gotta say like the only parts of this movie, Doug, that I actually think border on actually like bad are his performance and then like the technical problems. Like there's the editing doesn't always work. It doesn't always look good. Some of the camera angles are off. Like there's just issues with, I'm sure, like limits in budget. Yeah. Uh, I know, think that's probably, probably what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't do reshoots. All the sort of stuff that like if you've watched fucking old B movies you're familiar with that shit. So like mm -hmm. for a certain audience, nothing about this is going to rub them the wrong way. It just feels like every other movie that they like, you know, except for John Ashley's fucking performance. That's how I feel. About it. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's not even a plan nine performance, which I think would have been better in some ways. But, but by the way, I, I mentioned, I didn't think that we'd seen Andrew Centenera before I was wrong. He's in both the big bird cage and beyond Atlantis. So we have seen him several times. Previous. I definitely don't remember him from beyond Atlantis, but when you said that, I was thinking that he was in in the big birdcage. I don't think it's a right. huge role, but his face no, no, is, no, not, he's a memorable looking guy. So like, yeah. I felt like I had seen him before. Uh, you also brought up, you know, not to be gross or anything, but you brought up how often uh, Mary Wilcox is naked in this, which is, you know, mm -hmm. it's a feature, not a bug, but it did make me think about something because if you remove those scenes, which are for, you know, the, the sort of movie this is, pretty solid. They're, they're not as salacious, I guess, as things got in 1971, but th there's a lot of her body in this movie. If you took those out, though, Doug, this movie feels, to me, a little older than 1971. Now, I, yeah. I want to admit, mm -hmm. I think you're more familiar with movies of the past than I am. Uh, there are plenty of films from the 60s and 50s that you probably have seen that I have not. But in, as I'm watching this, this felt more like a 50s, early 60s movie until we had these extended, possibly unnecessary, but certainly not unappreciated, nude scenes that I just was like, oh, this is why it's a, th this is how I know it's from 1971, is how willing they are to really put time into these sex scenes. Uh, but if you take those out, Doug, am I wrong? Does this feel like retro for 1971? No, you're not wrong at all. That's exactly what it feels like they're trying to do here is just do a more modern to a certain extent version of an older style 
movie. I mean, this early 1970s period had a lot of that, right? I mean, even Hammer was struggling with it at that yeah. time period. Yeah. And what they did is they did the same thing this movie does, which is adds more skin, adds a little bit more blood. But basically, the structures are still the same. And yeah, the, the, which is weird because that, that's at odds where, I mean, you think about this movie coming out in the early 70s. A couple more years, and you have Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Last House on the Left. I mean, Last House on the Left, literally the year after this. And that's just like, it feels like it's from a different universe than the kind of movie that this is trying to be. But no, you're exactly right. This feels like a throwback movie with a little more gore, with a little bit more skin. But if you wanted to edit this down into a, you know, a form that you could play on daytime television, wouldn't take much to do it. Yeah, I agree, actually. And only, I mean, it would be lacking, but it wouldn't be as lacking as you would think, considering, you know, yeah. the, the, whatever. Um, and the I, thing is, we, we don't know the motivations behind that. Maybe Eddie Romero right, yes. loved those kind of movies, which is why he was trying to recreate them. Or maybe he just thought, thought that, well, Americans like these kind of movies. So, And this was obviously a movie meant to appeal to the U.S., and so why yeah. not do it that way? Yeah, I agree. Uh, speaking of that, appealing to the U.S., you know, we've uh, said before on this show that doing this show is interesting because we tend to focus on the the productions that Vic Diaz was in that are more American productions because those are more easily available to us. And that the movies he did that were Filipino productions sometimes are difficult or maybe even impossible for us to find or at least find with subtitles, right? Yeah, and so that's absolutely. something we've discussed. Uh, if you take this not as one of his primarily Filipino productions, though this is a Filipino production, mm -hmm. but hold it up to other kind of like Corman or Corman-esque movies of his that we've watched, is this the most Filipino of his movies? Like this feels to me incredibly more uh, embedded in and a production of the Philippines than any of the other movies he's been in that were meant to also appeal to an international audience. I mean, I think it's something we've talked about a few times, which is that when it's a film directed by a Filipino director, um, fair, yeah, then that makes a big difference, right? When it's Jack Hill instead, then the Filipino characters tend to be very much sidelined. Sometimes, you know, just a couple of speaking roles here and there. It really, it's what makes these films of the 1970s, the ones that with Corman's involvement and things like that, the fact that they had, you know, two very experienced Filipino directors who were involved in that and making these films it, it it's what transcends them a little bit from just being exploitation movies that happen to be set somewhere else to being filipino movies right and i think that that's a really important point to make when it comes to talking about this i mean eddie romero had made like like literally like 50 films before he ever 100%. made this one yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah. And those movies, and we are, you know, as you just said, many of them are not available with English subtitles. Many of them probably are lost forever, to be honest. And if you go to like the IMDb, some of them have like no information outside of the fact that they existed. But like this is a guy who knew his shit inside and out when it came to making movies. But yeah, no, this is a this is a very Filipino movie, and that is why we did this. This is why one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast. It's one of those things where what you realize from it is that there is a history here in this cinema. And there's a you know other places have this level of history as well, which is very underexplored, that is very underwritten about. And I mean, I wish we could, and maybe we'll be able to. Maybe some of these movies will come to light. Maybe they'll have more um, exposure. But like, I would imagine when it comes to some of these older films, like you can find prints of some of them on YouTube and stuff like that. They look a little rough because they just haven't been taken care of. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it it just was interesting to me because we so often have run into this idea of using the Philippines as 
a place with no distinction, right? That it can right. be a stand-in for anything that is, in some sense, foreign or different or tropical. And so a movie that is very uh, uh, embedded in the Philippines, right? And and uh, and part of that being something we're going to talk about in a little bit here, the religious nature of the movie. People forget right. how Catholic the Philippines are, although currently they're also very Muslim. But uh, historically, that because of the, the domination of the Spanish on the island, it's a very Catholic place. And so sure. a lot of the religious themes in this movie are not imported with the white actors. They are part of that culture at this point in 1971. Right. Um, I want to I continue with this, uh, this idea, though, because, uh, I don't know, I have a feeling watching the movie, Doug, right, that there is, as you pointed out, these two themes that are being put together. There is the corruption plot, right? This person has been uh, sold their soul to Satan uh, and then been brought back from the dead to inhabit the bodies of various people and thereby corrupt humans on Earth. And then it's also a monster movie where almost as a punishment for him not doing that or not wanting to be alive or maybe even falling in love with Mary uh, Wilcox, mm-hmm. um, he's turned into this monster. And then it also functions then as a monster movie, right? Uh one of the themes, though, that I, I was wondering maybe is going through this movie is something we've encountered previously, which is this idea of like a, a stranger in a strange land, like right, that right, he right. is this 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 uh, American who during World War II collaborates with the Japanese, commits all kinds of heinous crimes, and now is kind of stranded in the Philippines. Do you think there is some sort of like? Uh, a foreigner, quote unquote, or a person in a in a strange and exotic place aspect to this movie, because in the in some of the other movies we've watched, even the ones that I think are enjoyable, that's like not one of my favorite aspects that people can right. lean on for these narratives. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell if that was present here or if I was just expecting it to be present because we had these white main characters, uh, while the supporting cast was mostly Filipino. I don't think it's as upfront here as it is in, say, some of those Jack Hill movies, right? There's yeah, no which, scene that's where that's like what the movie is in a lot of those movies, right? Right, exactly. And I mean, in and even in some of those cases, they don't actually identify it as the Philippines. It's just again some sort yeah. of jungleish nation. Yeah. Um, but in this movie, there's no scene where where like our lead characters go out to. A, a restaurant or or a club or something like that where you get to see all the local people. You get to see like uh, city areas, but I, I don't know necessarily that this movie. I mean, I don't know if the, it's clearly a film set in the Philippines, and it's even in all of the uh, marketing and in the credits and things like that. But it's it's not. It doesn't talk about Filipino culture very much. The very right. fact that all the characters right. are speaking English already separates it a little bit. So no, I don't think it's like this travelogue type thing, yeah. or even like a like a Mondo. You know what I mean? This Mondo movie thing, where it's just like, look at this well, strange I, culture I, and all I their think weird I was, stuff they do. I think I was more worried that, um, and I don't think this is true, but I but more the idea that he just encounters this Vic Diaz Satan in the woods. And even when, even when Vic Diaz first transitions from the snake to a more embodied persona. Yeah. He almost has like indigenous dress. Yeah. He looks a little indigenous. Right. And I, and I was a little, that gave me a little bit of anxiety. On the other hand, I, I think because of the, the Catholic roots of the nation, maybe for them, it's just part of the idea that Satan would be present there. You know what I mean? So it's, it's interesting. It just, it, it, it made me a little concerned, but it, it was, 
whatever theologically is going on here, it for a lot of the movie gets backseated to just the fact that he turns into a monster and attacks people and eats them a little bit. That right. seems to be a bit more of the point and with, by the way, some pretty fun gore stuff that we'll talk about in a second here. So it did take a bit of a backseat. I, I do want to talk a little bit though, Doug, because in the end, the that aspect of the movie comes back and is part of the ending. And the way that the film wraps up here, he's he's basically an unkillable monster. Right. And this this former rebel guy, criminal, I guess, but more of a of a a rebel who has perhaps committed his own fair share of war crimes. He gets him to pray for him as the monster. That's right. Which which doesn't transform him out of a monster, but it makes him vulnerable. He's no yeah. longer. Uh, connected to the power of Satan, I guess, and he's able to die and thus be at peace. Um, I wanted to talk to you, Doug, about this because I know you know you're allergic to anything religious, right? So, how uh-huh. did you feel about the religious <laughs> allegory of this movie? The thing is, I might not be religious myself, but I I absolutely enjoy movies that have religious themes yeah. that are not yeah. necessarily extremely overt. I mean, I, I would say this is that that was sort of my actual question: is this isn't that religious of an allegory, but it is part of the story. It is part of the yeah. function. It. I think it's really interesting because at one point the character of the devil or Satan in this that Vic Diaz plays explicitly says though he could be lying he is the prince of lies after all that there is no there's nothing else right there's no afterlife or anything like that there's a suggestion that there's no hell that he's going to that it's either this or nothing but you have this character that obviously the and you see also characters like crossing themselves after after seeing death and things like this there's the the catholicism or the christianity in this is something that is explicit even though it's just on the margins um, the praying part of it is it. It's not like it comes out of nowhere. It doesn't necessarily because we already have this connection with this character. But it definitely is a very out of. It's there. What I should say, it's very different than what you would see in an American movie. I agree. Agree. You wouldn't see a character praying to find some level of forgiveness in a monster movie unless it was like some kind of wild Christian monster movie, which it, there were a few of those in the seventies too. It's just, it makes it more interesting to be honest. And I agree. To, and also you can interpret it in several different ways. The idea that he literally is giving himself over to, I don't know, God or Christ or whatever that allows him to be vulnerable enough to die. I think that's a really interesting way to kill a monster. Cause you know, this movie, there's no silver bullets. There's right. no right. There's right. there's no other way that we know to kill him. He's being people are shooting machine guns at him, and he's just walking right through it. So you know the 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 fact that that even when he wants to kill himself, also there's another layer to this monster, which is that yeah, he's a wild wolf man monster, but he, there's also something of humanity even when he's in his monster form, mm-hmm. because this blind guy he even says to him, he's like, you can't hurt me because I don't want anything from you, which I thought was a really interesting line as well yeah Yeah. yeah. i mean again i'm not necessarily sure we're meant to take too much away from it but i i do think that that uh your point is well made which is that the religion the religious aspect of this is something that's baked into the plot and was designed to be part of its resolution but it even the way it ends though you could and i think this is maybe on purpose you could read it humanistically like it's not that he's specifically praying to a specific God. Right. It's that he's concerned for another person. Like that's right. what, what changes in him is not suddenly he goes, Oh, I accept Jesus as my Lord and savior. No one says the word Jesus, the whole movie, but he just says, pray, I'm dying. Pray for me. He does. And suddenly he's vulnerable. That could easily be interpreted as he's finally putting someone above himself, you know, someone else yeah. he's, 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 or, or at least admitting that there's a chance that he could, 
could do something good, right? That he could be someone who cares about other people. Because part of his corruption is he doesn't believe he could be anything but the monster anyway. He doesn't right. believe there's anything else for him. I also wanted to point out a part of this, which is I'm sure just a gross detail, but actually functions for me in a way that I think is important for a lot of these movies. Uh, when Satan comes to tempt him, right, and mm-hmm. he, he, you know, eagerly gives himself to Satan, he, Satan gives him a, bo- a bag full of his friend's body parts and tells him yeah. to eat, right? This is something that's missing from all modern things in which all the devil has to do is just get your verbal consent and then bada bing, bada boom, you've been corrupted, right? Classically, Doug, that's not how this shit works. When you go to give yourself to the devil, you always got to eat a body or shit on the cross or piss on a Bible. Like, there's a thing you got to do, right? Yeah, but in the an, movies, a- an act that you can't come back from, right? Right, that's right. Like, and so, like, like, you've given yourself over both both spiritually and physically at that point. And so thematically for this, it even works, right? Because what corrupts him is eating of human flesh. And then his punishment when he disobeys the devil is he becomes a monster and has to eat human flesh, which is really, I think, the motivation of this creature. The creature, like, is kind of just wanting to avoid people if it can, but it always kind of hungrily attacks somebody because it's got to eat something. Um, I think that's part of what's going on there. I actually think, like thematically and even possibly theologically, that makes a lot more sense than, hey, just sign the dotted line, bada big, bada boom, we're done here. That does That's never made any sense to me. It just doesn't, because you just, why does a contract matter? Just break the fucking contract. We're done. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but don't you think, I mean, the, the version that you're thinking of, it comes from, it kind of evolves out of capitalism, right? It's like, yeah, sorry, buddy, you signed a contract. There's no way you can we're get done. out of that. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I may be, hey, I may be the Lord of Lies, but I'm not the Lord what a broken contract. But you also, know what I'm it's like even even like multiple stories where Satan himself takes people to court, right? I mean, yeah. that's <laughs> it's, a, it's what we all live under the possibility of someone you know, signing a bad contract. See, it's the thing that Jackie Chan should have learned before <laughs> he signed that low weight contract. I mean, I think this is all related to the whole like blood libel thing, right? right. All that all that iffy shit that came out of medieval Christianity. Anyways, sure. we'll move on because I think you're right. The religious allegory is not essential, but it does set this movie apart for a lot. A lot of other monster movies will have like vaguely religious moments of just being like, oh, God save us or something like that. But rarely does it function as a part of the narrative like this one does, but it still does it in a vague way. You could watch this and while people are crossing themselves, you don't have to believe that the Lord Jesus – this isn't – I guess what I'm saying is this isn't The Conjuring where uh, we have Catholic superheroes doing miracles. You know, This is like something that is kind of importantly religious but in a kind of vague way that I that I think is is interesting, you know. I mean, it also goes back to the idea that unlike Beyond Atlantis, which was written by Americans, this movie was written by Eddie Romero. So this right. is a written by a Filipino gentleman, you know, and that allows maybe some of these themes that you wouldn't see in an American movie to come through right. a little bit stronger. I agree. And and even the way that they relate to this person, like the way he functions, it seems a lot of times that we are more meant to identify with the public who's looking at this blood-soaked white man going, the fuck is going on with this guy, you know? (laughs) As opposed to the camera looking out at the community as what's going on in this place, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I also wanted, before we move to talking about Vic Diaz uh, and wrapping up here, I just want to talk a little bit about this monster. We have a little bit of a transformation. Uh, 
I, I don't think the transformation scenes, they're mostly just like look away and look back. So I, I don't yeah. think that's that big a deal. But I did want to know, like, how do you think this monster sort of functions? Do you like the look? Do you like the way that he kind of moves through the world? Talk to me a little bit about the the beast himself from the beast uh, uh, of the Yellow Knight. <laughs> I mean, he, he very much is in that classic Wolfman mold, right? Where right. he's just, you know, basically a human except for his hands and his face. And and maybe a wig, and and he's just you know slashing people with his with his claws. That's his whole reason for being. Uh, and to a certain extent, I have to say I really like that because it kind of adds to that throwback quality of what you're seeing. Um, and so so I would not argue that the makeup is very good. It is very distinctive. He's kind of greenish. I made that joke earlier about him looking like the Grinch. He does look like. Jim Carrey is the Grinch. His face looks a lot like that character. And I think there's going to be a killer Grinch movie coming out soon. And I wonder how much that's going to look like this character. I agree. I agree. I was thinking the same thing. Uh, so it's not good. That's a, it's, you know, what I'll say is it's not great, but it's distinctive and it does the trick. And I've seen worse makeup in movies with higher budgets of that time period. So I'm not going to rag on it too much. I just think that it's enough to get the idea across that he is now an otherworldly creature without him being a straight-up wolfman. I mean, you know, I'm going to go even above that. I like it. I uh, Because not only does it have the claws, but the claws kind of function... Almost like uh, in a kung fu movie when someone has those metal claws, like sure. the, way, the way that he slashes people is more like Wolverine than it is like a, yeah. Uh, they someone. he rips them apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I fucking love it. And while the while the face makeup is not the most effective, the couple of times he looks up from people he's been eating and he's got straight up entrails coming from his weird face. I, that's nightmare fuel, man. I'd put that on a t-shirt and wear that shit. That's that's some fucked up stuff. Uh, I do want to put out there that Ashley obviously isn't the man in the makeup because yes. while I don't know that the makeup is always effective, whoever is in the makeup, they're pretty good as a monster. There's a couple mm-hmm. of there's a couple of awkward daytime scenes like towards the end where he's just in a in a field and he's trying to look like he's scary and that shit doesn't quite work. You know, I think they really were pushing the limits towards the end of the movie of what was working for this makeup, but nighttime in an alley. I mean, it's fucking weird. It may not be as great as some of the other monster makeups you could have, but for what it is, I think it's pretty effective, honestly. And certainly, um, with a little bit more money and this amount of creativity, there could have been something truly fucking nightmarish. I think. I think. I, I will say they show doing. it. They show it a lot, you know, yes, and that's yes, that's. Yes, I yes. mean, that says something about yeah. it. There, I mean, whether that works or not is up to you. But this isn't something that they hide away in a way that you know a lot of horror movies might <laughs> with I, lesser makeup. I think it does the job. You know, I don't think it's distractingly terrible. I, maybe some people would disagree, but that's how I I felt it. You know, it reminded me a little bit of. Have you ever seen Twilight Zone the movie? Uh, yeah, not in a long time, but yes. It's like now there's a lot of reasons to be <laughs> to have complex feelings uh-huh, about uh-huh, Twilight Zone the movie, uh-huh, uh-huh. but the opening scene of that movie involves Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd, and they're just driving together, and they're just like having a conversation, and it's Dan Aykroyd just repeatedly says to him, he goes, "Do you want to see something really scary?" And he, he pull over to the side of the road, and he's like, "I'm going to show you something really scary," and he turns his head for a second, and when he turns back, he's like a a monster he's like a rick baker styled monster and he attacks albert brooks and that's the whole opening when i was a kid seeing that scared the shit out of me but the way that the transformations in this work where the guy just turns away and now he's a monster it reminded me of that a little bit and i and while i wouldn't say that this movie is particularly creepy i did have kind of a nostalgia creepy kick from that 
I feel you. I Yeah, I mean, no part of this actually scares me. And I think that's part of what I'm saying, how retro it is. Yeah. The certainly. way it's filmed precludes me being actually scared of anything. However, right. when it comes to like how a creature with this level of uh, budget really functions, I, I think it's pretty good, man. I like the way it moved. And I think whoever was playing the creature... I mean, honestly, underneath all that goop on their face, they do a better job of looking haunted than the main characters. So good on them for looking like a sad creature. Even as they're munch- <laughs> even as they're munching on guts, Doug, they look a little bit like I'm not having fun here, you know. I mean, I, I actually I'm kind of joking, but actually there is a scene where he's kind of hiding while these drunk people go past, and then when sure. one of them splits off, he attacks that person. While he's waiting for the drunk guy to come for him to attack. I thought that was actually pretty solid. Like, I was looking at him going, this is someone who, what he looks like to me is a very sad drug addict. Like, he's going to attack this guy. He's got to attack this guy. He would rather be doing almost anything else than attacking this guy, but he's going to do it. That's a lot to sell in a mound of shitty makeup on your face. But, like, (laughs) I felt it. I felt it in that moment, even though that's one of the scenes where I most noticed the camera cannot figure out what to fucking do in this scene. Like, the camera's trying to show us him and these people walking, and it's it's having issues. It needed a reshoot, but when it did focus on the monster, I thought it was pretty effective. So, anyway, let's get to, to really the highlight of the thing for us, which is not to discount the other actors, but... Vic Diaz, man. I mean, we've said it, but I just want to reiterate. Vic Diaz was a good Satan. He was really good as Satan. <laughs> you clapping along with your love. I Vic am. Diaz. I am. <laughs> He's great. He's terrific in this movie. It, it, very smarmy Satan. Um, he talks about how conflicted he is, but you, you kind of question whether he's feeling that, that right, conflict at right. all. You know, he's 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 exactly as you would want a Satan in this kind of context to be, which is that he's using someone, he's lying to them, he's manipulating him, he's, you know, he it just calls him Langdon over and over again in this really kind of demeaning way. He's Langdon. talking to him. He's talking to him after his death, after he's been buried in the ground because he oh, keeps yes. coming back. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just, I love it. And Vic Diaz, he is, especially because when you first see him, and he's got, you know, he looks like Vic Diaz. He's kind of chunky and he's he's there, especially in that indigenous garb where he's, you know, almost naked and stuff like that. And it's just like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be Satan. But he has legitimate menace, but he's also funny and, and quirky. And it's it just it brings life to this movie in a way that no other performance does. And, you know, we're not just saying this because this is a Vic Diaz themed podcast. Almost any review that you see about this movie mentions how great this Vic Diaz performance is because he is the standout performance overall. And it's just kind of refreshing to get to a movie in this podcast, which features him in such a, such a specific way that's really meant to play to his kind of odd look, but also the, the kind of the, the, the strange confidence that he carries himself with, which really works for this particular character. Right. Well, I think that, um, when we started this, for me at least, when we started this podcast, the point was I recognize Vic Diaz from some really stellar performances. So if we do this podcast, I'm going to get to see more outstanding performances that I don't know. And it, to that extent, Doug, this podcast has not always been successful because some of the Vic Diaz per- performances we've caught that I haven't seen before, they're good performances, but they're small. They're not well, They're not big. They're not a big surprise. This was the first thing that we've done where 
to me, it's a reminder of how great he is, where right. I'm really delighted because I, you know, I don't know that I would have ever caught this movie. You know, the the idea that it is historical. It's the first, you know, New World Pictures release and all that kind of stuff. But if we didn't have this podcast, I don't know that I would have gone out of my way to find this. It would have had to have probably been programmed at a horror night I went to or something. You know what I mean? And so um, this, you know, I got to say, watching this movie was like, oh, right. I'm so glad we have this show because I would not have gotten to see this otherwise. And he's really, really good. Now, I don't want to oversell it, you know, but uh, uh, I'm assuming most people who listen to the show are at least somewhat familiar, if not actual fans of Vic Diaz. And I can straight up say, if you haven't seen this, do yourself a favor because it really is fun. And uh, again, the whole movie is not that strong. There are parts where we're just spending too much time with Ashley and it gets a little boring. But overall, the movie is enjoyable because of Vic Diaz in my mind. Even even though there are other things I like about it too, he really is the selling point. You know, it's funny. He probably doesn't get that much more screen time than in some of the other movies that we've covered where he plays like a general or some other kind of military evil person. But it's just because it's a different kind of role and he's able to sink his teeth into it, it just makes so much more of an impact. It's, it's why I said earlier, it's like, I was joking, but this movie it, this movie suffers from all the time that he's not in it. I agree, I agree. More of him would have been a good call. <laughs> all right, well, uh, I guess that's it for uh, The Beast of the Yellow Knight. I'm glad we got to see it. Uh, try to check it out. Um, on our next episode, we're going to be talking about something I know I love, uh, uh, and which unfortunately doesn't have a huge Vic Diaz performance, but he is memorable in it. And that is 1982's Raw Force featuring Vic Diaz as a monk, a monk, Doug. Are you excited to see him as a monk? Well, I've seen this movie before, uh, but I am very much excited to revisit it. You know, it, this might be, even though it's not a very large performance, the kind of people who would listen to a podcast like this, this might be the f- movie that they're most familiar with that we've covered so far. R- Raw Force's reputation, even if it's not entirely a positive reputation, has really grown over the last few years. It's a really wild movie, and it's not boring. That is for fucking sure. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to having another rewatch and to have a chat about 1982's Raw Force. I'm with you, Doug. I'm with you. So, uh, Doug, if people, they want to, you know, be aware of when that episode comes out and maybe check out some other podcasts that are similar to ours and really just, you know, get more into what we're doing and what we're about. How would they do that? Well, the best first place to go is always cinepunks.com or go on your social media of choice. It's usually under the name Cinepunks, including on Instagram, on, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, where you can find a, an array of wonderful podcasts, including the newest episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord. If you want to check out our entire uh, episode, uh, sorry, our entire archive of Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, that's over at cinemasmorgasbord.com, along with all of our other Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts, including ones devoted to such diverse topics as The Career of Jackie Chan, Carol Kane, Paul Bartel, Alejandro Jodorowsky, and many more. Uh, you can find that on Twitter as well at CinemaSmorg S-M-O-R-G uh, and you can of course subscribe in all of those places as well and why don't you if you're subscribing leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice or hey even if uh, even if you don't want to do that you can just tell a friend there's a podcast devoted to Vic Diaz for some reason they should be listening to it you can of course follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules that's R-U-L-Z and I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly that's T-I-L-L-E-Y 
Thank you, everyone, for checking out the show. Uh, we'd love it if you would, you know, do what you do on the podcast apps, rate, review. But most importantly, tell a friend to check out the show and let them know how much you love me and you tolerate Doug. We appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but until next time, we just want to say good night.